so today as we tackle this question, I'm not like Ned Flanders. Uh, I'm not uh, anxious about talking about these topics. In fact, I love talking about uh, the relationship between science and Christianity. But rather than me give one big long talk, um, I've broken it up into five key questions that I think I regularly get asked in the classroom about this topic. Uh, I did talk about these in great detail in term one of last year, and so I put some links in the show notes if you want to go listen to those again. Uh, but our first question today comes from Trino. Don't Christians hate science? I mean, look at what they did to Galileo. I'll answer this one quickly. The short answer is no. Christians don't hate science. The reality is that Christianity has driven the motor of scientific inquiry for the best part of 2,000 years. Why is that? Because Christians believe that the universe that God made is understandable, knowable, ordered, because God is knowable, ordered, and good. And the universe reveals that to an extent, and Jesus reveals that to us fully. The reason I'll be brief on this question is because we cover this in great detail in our Year 9 unit on science and Christianity. We deal with the Galileo incident. And we actually determine that it was not just the church, but in fact everyone else in the scientific and academic community at the time who were opposed to Galileo. It's true that church leaders were very stubborn in how they dealt with Galileo, but if you look at the history, Galileo was pretty stubborn too, and at, down, at times he was just a little bit foolish in how he conducted himself. Uh, it's a myth that the church tortured him, and Galileo actually spent the rest of his life living in relative ease, even though his works were banned by the church for the best part of two centuries. Now, I'm not dismissing the whole Galileo incident, but I am saying that this one moment of poor form from the church, I don't think that should be held up as the norm for Christianity's relationship to science. The norm is that Christians have been the bedrock of scientific inquiry and discovery, and the sciences remain heavily populated by Christians today. Next question. How can God have made everything in six days when we now know that the formation of Earth took millions of years? That's a good question, isn't it? Uh, verses 1 and 2 of Genesis 1 that open the Bible, they say that God made the heavens and the earth in the beginning. That is, he made our planet and everything else in the heavens, the universe. Uh, this is kind of like a summary statement in the Hebrew. It's written in a different style and tense form to what comes from verse 3 onwards, where we get those six or seven days of God making parts of the earth. There's actually a really big shift in the tense and the grammar from verse 2 into verse 3. It's kind of like God saying, I made the earth and everything in verses 1 and 2, and then saying in verse 3, now let me tell you how I made everything in the earth. You see, God initially forming the earth as a blank canvas, that certainly happened a long, long time before that first day when God said, let there be light, which is there in verse 3. Now, how long was the earth a relatively blank canvas for before God started shaping it into the diverse planet that we know and love today? Well, Genesis doesn't tell us. In fact, it doesn't say much at all about that. Our scientific research does tell us a lot about what the Earth would have looked like in those formative uh, phases. And I'm really thankful for that research. But it's, it's simply false to claim that Genesis 1 demands that I have to believe that as soon as the Earth came into existence, that there was a week-long countdown on for God to make everything that we see today. But what about those seven consecutive 24-hour days? 
I know that some people like to get around this problem by saying that day in Hebrew can mean a 24-hour day or it can mean an indeterminate or you know, drawn-out period of time. But I think that's actually stretching the use of day here in this passage. After all, God does repeatedly say that there was evening and there was morning, the third day, the fourth day, etc., etc. So I think we're meant to read these as 24-hour days. But in fact, the Hebrew of Genesis 1 doesn't force me to say, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. But rather, a better translation would be, and there was evening and there was morning a third day. What this could mean is that each day is not necessarily one directly after the other. That is, it didn't necessarily have to all happen in a week. Instead, that each day was simply a significant day of God's development of earth. And these days could have occurred tens or hundreds of thousands of years apart. And in fact, our fossil record supports this idea of there being significant sudden influxes of developments in biodiversity. It's almost like it's a staged process of seven significant days that Genesis 1 speaks about. Next question. And how does the evolution of millions of different plants and animals fit with Christianity's account of creation? Thanks, Claire. Uh, the days of creation in Genesis 1, they do act like a structure. They are meant to be read not first and foremost as a science textbook, Rather, we're meant to read them as a really important theological statement. And the repeated statement is that God speaks, stuff happens, and it's good. Not only is the stuff he makes good, but the order in which God makes it is good. If you see this little diagram here, it shows how God first establishes the boundaries of earth in days 1, 2, and 3. And then he goes about filling those boundaries on days 4, 5, and 6. Plants come first, then aquatic life, and then life in the sky. Then there's also life on the land. All of these plants, fish, birds, animals, etc., they are made according to their kind. Now, that language of according to their kind, it's not as specific as our word species. You'll notice that in Genesis 1, it doesn't mention any specific species of animal. There's no mention of kangaroo or horse or donkey or rabbit. Rather, the phrase is simply according to their kind. And that's more about the kind of animal for the place that it fills. Seed-bearing plants and trees according to their kinds are produced on the earth on day three because that's the kind of life that grows best out of the earth. Birds according to their kind in the sky because that's the kind of animal that should be in the sky. You wouldn't put a giraffe in the sky because they're not the kind of animal that goes in the kind of place like the sky. It's just not kind. And it's the same with fish and other swimming creatures being made according to their kinds and being placed in the sea. See, God making things according to their kind does not mean that all the animals that have ever existed were all made at once and that they haven't changed. It just means that God has established a complex diversity in his creation. A diversity that is allowed for animals to come and go according to their kinds. The language here in Genesis is really broad. It allows for the later development of the biodiversity of plants and animals 
that have responded to the environment they have found themselves in over the millions of years of natural adaptation. Now that's evolution, isn't it? And the evolution of species on our planet is observable, knowable, and it's really good. It reveals some of the complexity of the universe we live in. And it's also a testimony to the laws of nature as we know them through biology, physics and chemistry. But those laws that evolution is built upon, they don't actually explain the origin of life. The evolution of life forms on this planet needs the pre-existence of life in order for them to evolve. Evolution requires a starting point. Natural processes could not create life if there had not yet been such a thing as natural life. And this gap is what physicists call the singularity gap. A single gap to explain the creation of the information processes that lurk in our DNA and have kept the mutating replication of species ticking over for billions of years. And I'm quite happy to believe that Genesis 1 shows me what that single explanation is. It's God speaking life into existence. Trenno, next question. Why aren't dinosaurs in the Bible? I know. I wish they were there. I wish that this t-shirt was true. Jesus on a dinosaur with a lightsaber. But sadly, there are no dinosaurs in the Bible. But we shouldn't really expect there to be dinosaurs. Uh, we know from the fossil record that dinosaurs did not roam the earth with humans. And apart from Genesis 1, pretty much all of the Bible focuses on events in human history. So when people try to tell you that the mentions of mysterious beasts in parts of the Old Testament, like the Leviathan and the Behemoth, that they are references to dinosaurs, well, I don't think that has to be the case. I think they're more likely references to animals like crocodiles and hippos. But like I said before about animals being made according to their kind in Genesis 1, kind refers to suitability, to being the kind of animal that should exist in a certain kind of place and kind of time. Dinosaurs, like thousands of other types of creatures, have come and gone according to their kind. And much of this coming and going happened before humans were arrived, arrived on the scene. In fact, I'm glad that God decided that dinosaurs were not the kind of animal that should share the earth with us. I mean, it normally doesn't go that well, does it? Last question. What makes humans so special if we are just smoother, smarter, more evolved monkeys? Humans are certainly like monkeys. We are both hominids after all. Hominids is a broad category of species that includes what we might call cavemen, as well as chimpanzees and other primates. The fossil record does offer us some very compelling data about the evolution of hominids. The discovery of more and more fossils has allowed us to do that. But there are still some clear gaps in the fossil record. Most biologists assume that just as we have found many other fossils that have closed the other gaps in our evidence, that we will eventually find those remaining fossils that will close the gap between primitive hominids and human beings. But the gap still remains. And it hasn't stopped us just blindly accepting that we are simply smoother, smarter monkeys, as Treno said. I mean, the similarities between us and monkeys are obvious some of us more than others. 
But just because we are similar to monkeys doesn't mean we are monkeys or that monkeys are humans. And we often measure these similarities at a genetic level. The greater the matchup of DNA, the closer the relationship between two species. And we share 98% of our DNA with chimpanzees. But would you say that a chimpanzee is just 2% less human than you? What about dolphins? The genetic code in our brains is virtually identical. But are we virtually dolphins? A banana. A banana shares 50% of our genetic makeup. So does that make a banana half human? You see, genetic similarities or not, it can begin to feel a little odd to think that you are merely twice as human as the piece of fruit in your fruit bowl. Now, there's not one knockdown piece of scientific evidence to say that humans evolved from monkeys, just as there is no knockdown evidence to deny it either. But there are significant gaps in the scientific account of the origins of humans, and they're made even more glaring when we look in Genesis 1. Every creature is spoken of as being made according to their kind in Genesis 1, but that's not how we were created. God does not say, let there be people according to their kind. No, God says, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Not the likeness of any other animal, and not according to the kind of hominids, but according to the likeness of God. Verse 27 goes on to say, so God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created the male and female. This is a circuit-breaking moment in Genesis 1. Because while all of what God has made so far has been good and has come from the weighty word of God, well, now we find a creature on God's earth who bears the very weighty mark of God himself. You and me. Humanity. The process of creatures emerging according to their kinds, it's disrupted here by the intervention of God to mark out a unique creature, a creature so different that it is placed above every other creature and is lovingly brought into a likeness with God. So while we might be smoother, smarter and more advanced than monkeys on a genetic level, God's word puts us on a whole other level. Check this clip out and then we're going to wrap up. I mean, the fact that I, I see the, the meaning in my life is the meaning I make and the meaning for all of us. We're so lucky to be here on this planet at this, and have brains and being able to, to understand the universe back to the earliest moments of the Big Bang and be able to uh, impact on our future. And we should use those brains and, and whether or not, and we shouldn't rely on someone else guiding us. What I'm but, saying but, is, but, but I get all on. of that. But, I get but, all of that. But, but hold Plus, on. Jesus. But, but, <laughs> but, 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 but the point is, that's a clip from Q&A on the ABC where renowned physicist Lawrence Krauss was sparring with well-known Christian studies character John Dicko Dixon. I've put a link to the whole episode in the show notes on YouTube if you want to watch it. Now, it was actually an episode of Q&A that I actually enjoyed because that little bit was, that was about as intense as it got. The rest of the episode was quite civilised and informative. You should check it out. Now, the point that Dicko was trying to make there was that he loves the truths that, that science gives him. And as he says, I get all that, plus Jesus. His faith in Jesus doesn't diminish science, rather it enhances it. And that seems to be the point to all of this. Etched into our universe are not just the laws of the universe themselves, but how to live in this universe. Listen to Claire read these words from the book of Proverbs. I, with 
wisdom was there when God set the heavens in place, when he marked out the horizon on the face of the deep, when he established the clouds above and fixed securely the fountains of the deep, when he gave the seeds boundaries so the waters would not overstep his command, and when he marked out the foundations of the earth. Then I was constantly at his side. I was filled with delight day after day, rejoicing always in his presence, rejoicing in his whole world and delighting in mankind. Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. Here the wisdom of God is personified. The wisdom of God was at God's side in the creation of the universe, marking out the foundations of the earth. And then when all was done, the wisdom of God was resounding in joy at God's handiwork. But the wisdom of God isn't just there in the heavens and the circle of life in nature. No, we are, we are supposed to live in this wisdom. Wisdom says, Now then, my children, listen to me. Blessed are those who keep my ways. Listen to my instruction and be wise. Do not disregard it. See, there is wisdom in living with the grain of the universe that God has made. There is knowledge in science, rich, bountiful depths of knowledge, knowledge that can make us marvel when we crack the formula or cry tears of relief when the vaccine works. But there's also wisdom in this universe, a wisdom that leads to a blessing beyond Bunsen burners, biology and black holes. So how do we live in this wise way? Well, it's through following God's instructions. That's how we are truly blessed. When Jesus gave his famous Sermon on the Mount, he repeatedly spoke of how to live the blessed life in God's universe. And this is how he finished that sermon. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundations on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Just as wisdom in Proverbs 8 instructed us to listen and keep her instruction, so too does Jesus say that there is wisdom in following his instructions and putting them into practice. The wisdom he speaks of is not about solving the ins and outs of evolution. It's not about tracing the origins of the Big Bang. They're not foolish pursuits. They require incredible skill and incredible knowledge. But the wisdom Jesus speaks of is far more incredible to achieve. Loving your enemies, forgiving others, speaking the truth always. And these are not just random commands. They are the wise and blessed way to live in God's universe. Both God's universe and his instructions are his wisdom. It's like this Lego car that uh, I built with my son Harry. When it arrived in the box, there was a wisdom in this selection of pieces that make up the rally car, and there was wisdom in the instructions that came with it. The mark of Lego's wisdom is in the pieces in the box and in the instructions. Just like God's universe and his instructions for how to live in it. But just as there are limits to what we can know about our universe, there are certain limits to how well we can follow God's instructions. And this is where the personifying of God's wisdom that we saw in Proverbs 8 comes full circle. Here's Treno with our last reading. Brothers and sisters, think of what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many were influential. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. 
God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are, so that no one may boast before him. It is because of this that you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God, that is, our righteousness, holiness and redemption. Therefore, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I love that passage, because that passage acknowledges that the wisdom that we make in this world is not where true wisdom is to be found. In fact, what we in our sinfulness have claimed is all there is in this world, well, that's been shown to be foolish. It's been nullified, Paul says, made nothing. Where do we find the real wisdom of this universe and the wise way to live? In Jesus, whom Paul says has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness and redemption. The wise instructions that we have ignored in our sinfulness have been fulfilled for us in Jesus, who is the only one who lived wholly, righteously with the grain of God's wise universe. He personified the wisdom of God that made this universe, and he died for our foolishness on the cross, and he made us wise for life beyond this universe. So just because of Jesus, I can not only know this universe, but why I am in it, and how I can be right with the one who made it.